we're talking about couples in quarantine. And let me tell you, it is a different dynamic than anybody in the history of the United States has ever experienced. So you've got a lifestyle that was based on two incomes and that's been shut off. Only person you control is you. The only feelings you can feel are yours and you're guaranteed to have conflict. And I'm going to give you a secret potion. Well, it's Dr. Phil. That means you found your way to fill in the blanks and you can guess the topic today. I'm talking about the coronavirus. COVID-19, and I'm talking about this because it's what's on everybody's mind, right? Listen, guys, we're in a situation that has never happened in the history of the United States. We've been through wars. We've been through the War of 1812. We've been through World War One, World War Two, Vietnam War, South Korea. We've been through 1918 with the Spanish flu. We've been through all kinds of things in this country, but we have never been through what we've been through now. This country is on lockdown. We now obviously have well over probably, I guess, 200 million people on lockdown. This isn't martial law, but we've been told to stay at home and shelter at home. And let's face it, that's creating a lot of pressure on everybody, on all of us. And let's think about what that means. Number one, nobody's working. I mean, think about it. Nobody's working. Everybody had a life. And since 1970, we've been a two-income society. Think about that. In the 1950s, when I was born and growing up, we were in a one-income society. I mean, dad worked, mom stayed at home. And the only time mom worked is if dad got sick temporarily or was out of a job for a while, then mom would come in and work and supplement during that time. And that's how you got through things. But then in the 70s, we became a two-income society where both mom and dad worked. And as we moved into the 80s and 90s, like 78% of the homes, both parents worked. And what does that mean? That means that the lifestyle was adjusted to a two-income standard, where the house you lived in, the cars you drove, the money you spent, clothes you bought, the trips you took, everything was based on two incomes 100% of the time. And if anything happened to disrupt that, if one of you got so much as a head cold, bang, you were in serious financial trouble. And now neither of us are working. Both mom and dad are out of work. Both mom and dad are sent home because all jobs are shut down. So you've got a lifestyle that was based on two incomes and that's been shut off. So now you're sitting home and they're arguing on Capitol Hill about what they're going to do. And they say, well, there's going to be a $2.2 trillion package and they're going to ship off $1,200 or whatever it is in three weeks. <laughs> yeah. But nobody's got a three-week cushion. I mean, let's face it. So that creates tension and pressure. Then you've got the pressure of, am I going to catch this COVID-19? Am I going to catch the disease? 
And everybody's talking about, are you going to catch it or not? Nobody's talking about the fear people have of the hell that you go through when you get it. The coronavirus outbreak continues, and with it comes increase in stress, pressure, and uncertainty. For the past weeks, I've been delivering shows from my home about this because, like you, my job got shut down. They closed the studio. They said, You've got to go home. We're shutting down Paramount. We're shutting down Stage 29. We're shutting down everything and everybody's going to go home and work from home. And listen, I didn't like that, but I totally agreed with it. I mean, we've got like 300 people down there and you can't have social distancing and have 300 people working in one building. Of course, I didn't want people to be at risk. Nobody did. So we said, okay, everybody go home and let's work from home and we'll keep doing shows. But then our guests come from all over the United States. We thought, well, we can't be asking people to fly in. We can't be asking people to get on airplanes and fly when this disease is everywhere. So that doesn't work. Because when people travel and do things, it falls apart. People start getting infected and they start spreading it. Look what happened recently when people didn't take it seriously in Louisiana. They went to Mardi Gras and there were 400 new cases within 24 hours. 400 new cases. And the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, went on and said, look, we're headed for where Italy is right now. And Italy is stacking body bags right and left. And so people are saying, okay, well, we're going to shut down for two weeks. They came and told us, okay, we're shutting down for two weeks. And I said at the time, no, we're not. This is going to be worse, not better in two weeks. Seriously, this is going to be worse, not better in two weeks because we haven't even approached the apex. Bill Gates, fairly bright guy, says we're not going to get to an apex before six weeks. It's ramping up really fast. The mayor in New York City was on the air saying our morgue has a capacity of 900 and we're going to hit that capacity in seven days. Now, the Chicago PD says they're not taking it seriously here. We're going to actually start finding people because they're not taking it seriously. And this is costing lives, right? Uh, clearly, we're seeing thousands and thousands of lives lost. And this is a different situation. Because when people go to the hospital and die from COVID-19, they're dying alone. They're dying alone. And why is that? Because loved ones can't go be with them because they're infected. And if you go in there and hug them and hold their hands, then you can get infected and you'll take their place in the bed when they pass away. I got a letter came in on Facebook. Tracy from Pennsylvania wants to know, how do you deal with grief of a loved one who passes due to coronavirus when you can't go see them? And when they do pass alone with nobody there, you can't have a funeral. Well, wow. That is a really fair question. I can tell you that it's a different time. As I said, we've never been able to deal with this. and. I just had to deal with this personally in my own life.
a couple that are our best friends passed away and you just are so frustrated because you can't have a funeral. You can't have a memorial service. You know, there would be 300 people that would come to honor the loss, but you can't do that. And it would take place in another city. You can't even travel. So there has to be a virtual memorial. There has to be a virtual eulogy. All of these things are different. Look, we're just in different times right now. So how do you deal with the grief of a loved one? You know, you deal with it the same way you always have done. And you just realize that you're not dishonoring this person by not doing the traditional timeline. Because there will come a time when this country opens back up and you can have a memorial service and people understand there is a value to this technology where you can actually do something where you can go on YouTube and post something. You can have a virtual eulogy. You can make an announcement and then you can just agree when time comes that you will all get together and have a celebration of life or a memorial service or whatever you want to do. But you just have to acknowledge we are in a different time and not feel guilty about it. You didn't create this problem. Do what you can do virtually without putting other lives at risk. You don't want people to feel like they're compelled to come or they're dishonoring your loved one. That's not the case. Don't feel guilty and don't make others feel guilty. Do what you can virtually and in time know that you will step up and honor this person the way that you really want to. I understand that we're just having to do things differently. I got a question from Erin Michelle on Facebook. She said her four-year-old really misses his friends. And although they have FaceTime play dates, the four-year-old says, that's not good enough. Oh, I want to see my friend. And, you know, Erin is saying, should I be worried about the long-term effects of him not physically socializing with other children? Listen, that's a fair question because Children socialize, they become socialized at four and five years old. They bond at this time. But I promise you that you can help head off any potential consequences by becoming your child's playmate as well. Look, kids build confidence and independence and they learn skills like sharing and taking turns playing, whether it's with other kids or whether it's with their siblings or their parents. They don't have to have a deep bond with another child in order to learn empathy, sharing, caring, remorse, all the things that go into being socialized. And some of those things can happen if you have a FaceTime play date where they learn to take turns, they learn to follow rules, they learn to do those things. But such things as empathy and human caring can happen with their interaction with pets, siblings, and you as the parents. All those things can happen. So you're not going to scar your child because for a period of time, they're not able to actually physically be with another child. Now, that doesn't mean when they are able to do that again, that they might not have some discomfort right at first because they haven't done it for a while and you may need to ease them back into that. But you can stand in for their peers. You can build those forts. You can build those tents. You can get up in the treehouse. You can do those things with them. So 
mom, dad, you're just going to have to get in there and do what you can to be a playmate. Buck up and do that. You'll be glad that you did. And there's an old saying that the hours are long and the years are short. And what that means is time in the backyard drags on forever. But they sure grow up fast. And you say, boy, those years flew by. The hours are long and the years are short. Just be glad that you do have this time and make the most of it while you have it. Make the most of it while you have it and seize onto it. Now, COVIDians, a new word that wasn't in our vocabulary even 30 days ago. So what is a COVIDian? It is somebody that behaves like an idiot when it comes to the disease COVID-19. These are people that just don't seem to understand the gravity of what we're talking about here or they understand it and are so selfish, so egotistical, so entitled that they just don't care. Now I've talked to a bunch of these COVIDians and they come up with every sort of theory, conspiracy theories. This is all just media. This is the Illuminati. These are rich people trying to keep the young people down. This is all just made up. I guess they think they just went and got a bunch of dead bodies and piled them up and got the media down there to take pictures of it. Seriously, there are those out there that think this is all just a conspiracy. Then there are those who say, look, I'm young. This is an old people's disease. So why do I have to be turning my life off? Because some old person is going to die. They're going to die anyway. So why should I be concerned? Why should I miss spring break? Why should I miss my prom? Why should I miss all the things that I've looked forward to all of my life? Because some guy over here, some woman over here that's 65, 75 years old is going to die. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, you know what? Yeah, you should. Because that's called empathy and that's called being socialized. That's just something that we all have to do to be in this life together. So you got to be thinking, so who would be that selfish? Who would do that kind of thing? Well, let's talk about that because there are a couple of personality types that do this. Narcissistic is one of them. Let's talk about who narcissists are. Narcissists are people that just need an audience. They just need acceptance. So they got to be with the in crowd and they believe that they are entitled. They think they are special. They truly believe that whatever they do is their right. They have no empathy for other people. They are exploitive of other people's rights. They truly think they are special and should be with special people to do special things and they believe they should have an audience for all of this. That is why this YouTube generation thinks they need to post it on the internet if they're brushing their teeth or if they're tying their shoes or changing their shirt. They think they have to have an audience for everything and they measure their self-worth as a function of how many likes or views they get on some social media platform. And these people are so entitled that they believe that the rules don't apply to them, that sacrifices should not be made by them 
And therefore, if you say, look, it's a time that we just all have to make sacrifices and do things that we don't want to do, that requires maturity and they just don't have that. Now, that's one personality type that you have to deal with. Stop and think if you know people like that who just simply don't want to pay the price, don't want to do things for the general good of society. Now, then there is a malignant narcissist. And these are people that are actually antisocial in their personality. These are people that just fail to conform to social norms. So if the norm is, hey, we're going to shelter at home, we're going to maintain social distancing, we're going to have a different level of hygiene, we're going to wash our hands, we're going to clean surfaces, we're going to respect space from others with social distancing, not them, because they are impulsive, they are reckless and self-destructive. They're reckless with their safety, they're reckless with your safety. They are irresponsible. So they'll do something that is high risk because they don't really value themselves and they sure as hell don't value you. So if you take someone with an antisocial personality and mix it with somebody that has a narcissistic personality and put them in a societal situation that requires that everyone work together and everyone get along and if we're going to get this done, everybody's got to push this rock up the hill together. These people are not going to help. They're not going to help push the rock up the hill. If we're going to keep this disease from spreading, then everybody's got to play by the rules. The only way this spreads is if people stop connecting with another person. If you have the disorder, if you have the disease and you don't get around other people, you can't give it to them. So it runs its course within you. And you now build up antibodies. You actually are part of the solution instead of part of the problem. All you have to do is stay home until that takes place. And you go from being part of the problem to part of the solution. But they don't want to make that sacrifice. The hell with you. They want to go do what they want to do. That's why Miami Beach was wall to wall with young people. And when they closed the beaches, they moved to boats 500 yards off the shore because they don't care if they make anybody else sick. They'll go do that and then come back home and go to the store, the post office, or wherever people are doing essential things, walk right up to them and make them sick and not care one whit about whether they're doing it or not. So you just have to understand there are those people out there. That's why the Chicago Police Department is saying, if necessary, we're going to start finding these people $500 every time we see them out. Now, I talked to Sheriff Villanueva just a few days into the lockdown in L.A., and they said, look, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be heavy-handed, but we just want people to understand we have to cooperate here. So we've got a problem here. There are people that just don't want to play the game. They just don't want to play the game. Now, what's on the other end of the continuum? You know, that's where it gets hard because on the other end of the continuum are people that are experiencing so much anxiety, so much fear, so much depression that it's paralyzing them and actually making them more susceptible to the disease. As serious as coronavirus and COVID-19 is, 
there are more risks that we have to contend with, and those risks have to do with mental hygiene. Because it is my belief, and I think that of a lot of folks in the mental health profession, that anxiety, depression, and stress can do as much or more damage than the actual virus that is being reacted to. Now, why do I say that? I say that because when people get as reactive to something as they are to the unknowns that we're dealing with here, it takes a toll on the human body. When you're under this much stress, it causes your immune system to be depleted and it shows up physically. Those that are at risk for dementia are at much higher risk for dementia. If you have cancer, mortality goes up as much as 25%. Functional decline. If someone is elderly and how functional they are with activities of daily living, their ability to take care of themselves, to do things, to walk, to handle grooming, to do things around the house, declines dramatically when they are paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Risk of stroke can go up as much as a third when people are paralyzed by fear and anxiety, having panic attacks. They stay in a state of adrenergic arousal all of the time. This can be really problematic. Now, why is this happening? Is it happening because this is a death sentence if you catch this disease? No, it's not a death sentence. The anxiety and depression panic attacks that people are having, even committing suicide, is disproportionate to the risk. Because there's so much we don't know about the coronavirus, about COVID-19. But what we do know is that 85% of the people that contract this disease will have mild or moderate symptoms for a matter of days, then they will get better and return to their lives. Now think about what I just said. 85% of the people will have mild to moderate symptoms. Will it be pleasant? No, but they will have mild to moderate symptoms and they will not require hospitalization. They will heal at home and get up and go back to their lives. Now, when you hear it said that way, does it seem like you should be paralyzed by anxiety and fear? Does it seem like you should become so depressed that you contemplate taking your own life? No. But if you watch the media around the clock, if you spend 18 hours a day glued to television, let me tell you why that's not a reasonable representation of reality. I'm not trivializing this disorder. But the news reports sensational things. They report the worst case scenario. They report the bad aspects of the story. Why? Because that's what people watch. You don't ever turn on the five o'clock news and they say, today at Third Nell, nothing happened. Why not? Because nobody would watch that. When you go to websites and you look at these counters, how many cases have been reported? How many deaths have been reported? 
How often do you see the statistic, how many people recovered? Almost never. But the truth is, almost half of the people that contracted this virus in China have recovered. Now, I don't believe everything the Chinese say for a second. I don't believe that they don't spin this politically, but I do know that an awful lot of people there have recovered. I do know that even here, that a lot of people that contracted this early have already recovered and are back to their lives and in fact have created antibodies that can create what's called a convalescent serum that can be used in the fight against this infection with people that are at risk or really far down the disease path. There is good news about this, and that is that 85% of the people don't require hospitalization. Now, of those that do require hospitalization, there is a percentage that will tragically die. And for them, it's 100%. If you're one of those that dies, if your mother or your father or you die, for you, it's 100%. And I don't mean to trivialize or make light of that in any way. What I am saying is the majority of people will not have that outcome. They will have mild or moderate symptoms. So why have we shut the entire country down? We've shut it down for those 15%. We've shut it down for the 15 or 20% that are at risk of dying if they do contract this disease. Is it worth paralyzing the entire country for 15% of the people most of whom are elderly, you damn right it is. We take care of each other. We take care of our elderly. We honor our elderly. And it's not just the elderly, although it is mostly elderly. Do we shut down our economy? Do we shut down our country for these people? Damn right we do. You do what you have to do to take care of everybody. And if you don't think that makes sense, you will be there one day if you're not already. We take care of those people. We can't just say, well, that's just 15% of the people. I'll get it and get over it. What do I care if I go to the grocery store and I'm standing next to Aunt Edna who lives on the corner and I give her this disease and she dies? That's not okay with me. It should not be okay with you. It should not be okay with a 19-year-old going to the university that wants to go to spring break. If that's okay, then we've lost all humanity. But to be paralyzed with anxiety and depression means you are disproportionately reacting to the threat. Your reaction is disproportionate. And it is even leading to an increased risk of suicide. You've got to be realistic and you've got to be willing to test your thinking. Because if you let this get away from you, it can get bad. You know, I said in the beginning that I felt like the anxiety, the depression could do as much damage as a virus itself that it could even lead to suicide. And I have to tell you that I've been looking on the internet for the messages that I'm getting, the posts that I'm seeing, and I've seen a troubling number of references, both directly and indirectly, to people that are thinking about suicide. They're just feeling lost. They just say, you know, it seems like 
I'm overwhelmed by this. And look, if you're one that's thinking about that, thinking about ending your own life, please don't. Please don't, because I can tell you there are people out here that care about you. And I have talked with so many people that have attempted to take their lives and failed. In fact, 94% of the people that attempt to take their lives fail. And they're so glad they did. They're so glad they did because things get better. What seems like such an insurmountable hill to climb at the time doesn't seem that way later. The mood passes, the time passes, and things turn around. And if you're around someone that's talking about it, take it seriously. People who talk about it, in fact, do it. And if you see them searching the internet for ways to end their life, or they're withdrawing from you, or they're telling people goodbye, they're giving away all their prized possessions, take it seriously. And listen, suicide hotline. Use that. These people won't do anything that embarrasses you. They won't ask you to identify yourself. They won't come kick your door down and make you go to some psychiatric facility. They will listen to you. They will answer your questions. They will help you. And there are answers. There are people that care. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Elaine from D.C. wrote, and she said, how can I stay positive and productive when the isolation is making me feel depressed and sluggish? Well, listen, loneliness is one of the biggest things that can cause people to feel depressed and anxious. That's where you're left alone with your thoughts. You know, I always tell people, I don't like to hang around in my head. It's a bad neighborhood. You know, get out of your own head. Think about other things. Don't watch the media all day long because it will get you upset. Look, limit the amount of time you spend watching the news. Watch 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. Pick the source that you're going to use. Don't pick those that are histrionic and sensationalistic. Choose your source. Limit your time. And if you want to overcome this, Start a project. Don't sit around in your pajamas every day. Don't lay in bed every day. If you used to get up every morning and take a shower and get dressed and get ready to go to work, do the same thing right now. Get up every morning. Take a shower. Don't be a slug. Get up and get dressed. You're going to have to do that soon because this world is going to start. We're going to get back to life, and, and you don't want that to be difficult. Keep a journal, write down your thoughts and pay attention to what you're saying to yourself with your internal dialogue. Winners do things losers don't want to do. And you may have to behave your way to success. Create a scheduled routine. And listen, you want to give away what you need the most. If you want to overcome fear and anxiety, if you're feeling lonely and lost, give away what you need the most. The older people are the ones that are more at risk, and they're less likely to know how to use technology. 
go down to your neighbor's house. If maybe it's a few floors down in your apartment building. If you know there's an elderly person down there or an elderly couple, go knock on their door and say, hey, you don't know me, but I see you on the street or in the building. And I know you live alone. And I'm standing six feet back from you because I'm respecting social distancing, but I know you're alone. I just want to see, do you need anything? Can I run an errand for you? I'm going to the store. Can I pick up anything for you? I'll just leave it at your door and I'll knock on the door. I, I don't want to violate you. And uh, you probably don't want to give your phone number to a stranger. I, I understand, but here's mine. If you need something, call me. Do, do you have FaceTime? I would love to be your friend. We could talk on FaceTime. I, I, I care about you. I don't want you to be alone. You reach out to someone and become their friend and do something for them. You will feel so much better. And if there's not someone you've identified, call your church. Ask around. Ask friends if they know someone. Give away what you need the most. It will fill you up faster than anything you can imagine. Because I'm telling you, if you want to feel better, you got to shake it up to break it up. I mean, change everything. Change the furniture in your house. Move it around. Put the couch over here, the chairs over here. Open the windows up. Play music. Do everything you can possibly do to brighten up your world. Don't just sit around in a fetal position ruminating and obsessing about what bad can happen. As I said, start a project, change your world, change your environment, get up, get dressed, get ready to go. We are not helpless here. You can change the course of your life, even in isolation. That's what you can do individually. Now, how do you manage things as a couple? We are weeks into a self-imposed quarantine, and I can assure you, Nerves are starting to get frayed under one roof. And I, I've talked to some families that have a husband and a wife, four children and two dogs, and a house that was not designed for everybody to be home at one time all the time. And now they're homeschooling. So these parents went from having jobs to being teachers. And they've got four kids in four different grades and one computer. And they're supposed to do all this homeschooling on one laptop. I mean, how does that work? It doesn't. And so everybody gets pretty tense. And look, if you're having tension with your partner right now, that does not mean that you don't love each other. It doesn't mean you married the wrong person. It just means that you weren't geared up for this. You didn't plan for this. You didn't train for this. You just got thrown into it. And let me tell you, there's a difference between being in an intense situation like this by choice versus being ordered into the situation. It's a different mindset. It's like I talk to a lot of couples who are having sex because they're on the thermometer for ovulation versus just organically whenever they want to. And it becomes work really fast when they're doing it on the clock and on the thermometer. They go, wow, that took the fun out of it because now it's regimented. And that's kind of what's happening here. Everybody's ordered to stay home. They're ordered to be together. And it's like, wow, I didn't choose this. It's been imposed on me. And people tend to buck against that. 
relationships are negotiated and the negotiations never stop. They just never stop. And when we're being forced to be together this much, while we're under so much stress, our nerves are on edge. And the first thing you need to do is acknowledge that. Look, don't pretend that this isn't weird, that it isn't unusual. Sit down with your partner and say, wow, we've got thrown into the shark tank here, didn't we? And we weren't prepared for this. So let me ask you, th this has got to be difficult for you. I wouldn't want to be with me all the time, and I am. How can I help? How can I help? There's got to be things about me that bug you. Is it, tell me, how can I help? I don't want to be a problem. Tell me how I can help. And you're guaranteed to have conflict. And I'm going to give you a secret potion for minimizing that. And it is the rule of I versus you. You want to use I statements, not you statements. And here's what I mean. You get in a disagreement, you don't want to say, well, you did this, and you made me feel this way, and you this, you know. When you do that, people immediately get defensive, as opposed to saying, I feel this way. Based on what happened, I feel this way. Not you did that, I feel this way. Only person you control is you. The only feelings you can feel are yours. So if you get into these disputes, start using I statements instead of you statements. It will make all the difference in the world. And something that I've said that I feel real strongly about is I want you to substitute the words hurt, fear, and frustration for the word anger. So if you're in a dispute with your partner, instead of saying, wow, I am really pissed off, take that word out of your sentence and say, I am really hurt, or I'm really scared, or I'm really frustrated. Taking out the word anger, mad, pissed off, and replacing it with the real emotion you're feeling, which is hurt, scared, or frustrated, will change the entire dynamic. I statements and replacing that word will make a huge difference. More about that and how to handle custody when you don't want to put children at risk. We're talking about couples in quarantine. And let me tell you, it is a different dynamic than anybody in the history of the United States has ever experienced because we have never been in a situation where the entire country was shut down. And I was just telling you how to negotiate in your relationship and how to handle conflict. And there is a trap you can get caught in. And it's what I call a relationship catch 22. And I was telling you how to use I statements instead of you statements. And one of the things that you can do to stay out of conflict is use the I statements and really be a listener. How many times with your partner have you ever said these words? Tell me more. 
How many times have you ever said the words, tell me more, instead of defending yourself or offering a solution, trying to fix everything? That's what we do. That's what men do. We always want to fix everything. We want to rescue. And that doesn't work. It gets you into a relationship catch-22. Let me tell you how that works. Okay, you start out where you're upset. You're wounded. And so your partner poorly tries to fix the situation. And you reject that offer. And so now you're the bad guy. Well, wait a minute. Weren't you the one that was wounded to begin with? So now you wound up being the bad guy. That's the catch-22. You're upset and wounded. Your partner tries to fix it. That's not what you were asking for. So you reject it and you wind up being the bad guy. That's the catch-22. That's why it's important for both of you, instead of trying to fix it, say, tell me more. I want to understand. That's all you have to do. You don't want to weaponize your language. You don't want to do that. Recognize that crises reveal who you are. And you want to act as though there's a hidden camera. They're going to tape this and play it back on Dr. Phil someday. And whatever you do, don't argue in front of the children. I have two rules about children. You never involve them in adult content and never hold them responsible for things over which they have no control. If you do that, you'll give those children a big gift. Now, Catherine from Canada wrote in and she said, split custody. What's best for the children right now in this difficult situation? My son's lungs have never been good. Should he stay at one parent's for a while or keep shuffling back and forth every week? Well, according to the CDC, people with asthma may be at higher risk of getting very sick from COVID-19 and limiting the risk of outside exposure can be helpful. So all I would tell you is this, you and your partner, your ex, need to co-parent very carefully. And that means if you're going to maintain your joint custody and you're going to share time with your child, recognize that you have to do so responsibly. And this is not an airborne sickness. This is what the immunologists and infectious disease specialists are telling us. That's not me. I'm not either of those things, but I do have the opportunity to talk to them. And they're saying this is not an airborne disorder, but it does hang in the air. So you don't want someone that is susceptible to be outside a lot. So if you're going to make this switch, you two work together. You pull the car in the garage, you put the child in the car, you pull into the nether garage, you, you take the child out. You make sure that the two of you are working in lockstep and in harmony to make sure that you protect the child and he still has access to both parents. Put the child's interest ahead of your own.
You got an interesting question from John from California who wants to know, do you think when this is all over, people will always fear to shake hands with each other when they meet? Will there be a new way to extend a greeting? Well, you know, John, I have to tell you, this is a new thing, as I've said. And, you know, people are fist bumping and people are kind of crossing their chest with their hand and kind of bowing and people are touching elbows, which violates the six foot social distancing, by the way. Um, but listen, who knows what's going to come out of this? I can tell you that what I really am concerned about is that we don't react to this disproportionately. Now, Robin and I 100% respect the CDC guidelines here. We are maintaining social isolation. We are adhering to social distancing. But what I fear is scaring children because children don't understand everything that adults understand, and they can be made very fearful where they see the world and people in it in a very scary way. Be careful that you don't cause your child to be afraid of other people. And be careful that they don't watch the media so much that they do see the world as a very hurtful place. I learned after 9-11 that children that were watching the media without a parent thought all of the buildings in America had been knocked down because they were seeing it on all the channels from different angles, and they thought all the buildings were being knocked down, not just two. And they were horrified at what the world was going to be when it was over with. So we need to be sure we frame this with children and make sure they understand we are not helpless here. Don't be afraid of the world. Just respect the fact that there are times that we need to be more careful. And understand that you are in power. You're not a victim here. You don't have to be afraid that something's going to jump on you and, and kill you or steal your health. Just be aware that there are times that a certain degree of hygiene is more important, and we need to be careful about that. Let them know they're powerful. They have power. And have a sense of humor about it. When you're washing hands, make it a game. See who can get the biggest suds going. See in, in 20 seconds, who can get the biggest amount of lather going. See who can make up the funniest song while you're washing your hands. And, and when you're out, see who can be the most friendly from across the street. Don't let them isolate from people. Don't let them socially distance. Just let them physically distance but make sure that they maintain social skills. Don't let them be afraid, make them powerful, make them develop new skills. Now, for more information about today's show, log on to drphil.com and don't forget to check me out on any of my social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can even find me on TikTok. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well. We'll see you next time.